business is war. We're just without the guns. And we were just killing it one day at the markets. And I was like, I think this can be a billion-dollar company one day. And what's the most important financial advice is find the right partner. We were putting all the money back into the business. We were turning over $50 million, and Tani and I were paying ourselves $150,000 each. No dividends. It's all about putting more deposits in than you're trying to receive. And I think over a period of time, if you can deposit more and deposit more and deposit more and deposit more, eventually you create what they term as an avalanche that comes back your way. It can be a drug, this success, this growth. You just chase it. For me, I always had this thing. I never wanted to be a small business. The pressure never releases. I thought we'd get to 10 million, surely we'd go. Once 50, once 100, once 200. It doesn't. I would still wake up with like, the wage bill's half a million dollars this week. That initial spark to cut through, to create product market fit, takes a tremendous amount of energy. You need a separate advisor on your side that's not incentivized for the deal to go through. Oh my God, we could spend $10,000 a day for the next 300 years so we wouldn't run out of money. I loved streetwear, but to tell you the truth, I think I loved entrepreneurship more. And we are back with the Frankie Lee podcast. And today I've got you another awesome guest, a man that has scaled from local markets to a 600 million valuation in, in his company, Mr. Simon Beard of Culture Kings. Welcome to the show. And I'm glad we finally got this done. Thanks so much for having me, Frankie. I'm glad to be on it. Hey, I, I, I'm hyped to have you here. You know, I was, I was so buzzed last time and then we just had the technical difficulties and we couldn't get this done. But I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're back on here to discuss this journey because obviously you've gone from literally Carrara Markets to 600 million valuation in a, in a clothing, streetwear clothing brand called Culture Kings. Let's just take it way back for the audience. Obviously, a lot of people in Australia know you. Um, you you're well known now in the US because obviously you broke into that market as well with a physical store and everything. Let's just let's just take it way back, right? Obviously, uh, did you even imagine when you started at Carrara Markets all them years ago with the clothing brand that you would ever conceptualize that you would be at the level you're at now? It's funny. I've I've always sort of had big dreams. I always had a goal at school. I wrote down I want to be an entrepreneur from day one. I never wanted to work for anyone. So I started at the market straight out of school and was just like the hustler importing stuff from Alibaba. It's like the old school drop shipping, but where I actually had to sell it myself at the markets. But when I entered into the clothing space and streetwear, I remember when I'd, um, you know, I'd had the Culture Kings up there and I remember looking at it when we were just killing it one day at the markets and I was like, I don't know, I, I, I think this can be a billion dollar company one day. So I remember thinking that, when I was at the markets, looking, I remember that moment looking back at the logo and thinking, I've got this, like this is, this is going to be big. So. And, it, and it's kind of like a burning desire within yourself to kind of see that reality come to, to, come to pass. Yeah, and I think the, the thing that we did, which as I noticed with a lot of other businesses, we stayed focused, we stayed under the radar, we were completely every waking hour on building our business from the grassroots. And that's how we were able to do it bootstrap, you know, no loans or investors. We would just be able to, and I learned that at the market so clearly how to run a, a daily PL of, you know, if I can finish on 50% margin, 10% rent, 10% wages, 10% other stuff, and make 20% profit. And that was that retail calculator I built from those early days at the markets that 
I could carry forward from our first store. I carried it forward to online. And all we would do is that 20% profit we would make per year, just reinvest that whole thing into doing the next store, the next fit out, the next software upgrade, and building slowly but shortly year on year between 20 and 50% year on year growth, but for what in the end was 14 straight years. So you knew then from day one when you were at that market, you knew that this was, uh, you had to play 10 year games. You weren't, you weren't there playing quick hit and run, grab some cash, go and spend it on a Porsche, go and spend it on a house. You were literally like taking everything that you earned from, from that market and just going right back into more clothing, back into more stocks, sell more stocks, sell more items. Yes. As much as I wanted to so many times, uh, when I thought, oh, can I do it? And I think what I'm so lucky is I met my wife right at the markets. We built it together. But I was like, I'm so lucky because I worry if I was ever single, maybe I would have given to that temptation of like I needed the car or I needed to blow it on bottle service or on trips, which that money instead poured back into the business just amplified and and. Together, we were so focused because we were all in it together, our back against the wall. Um, we were working 100-hour weeks side by side. Uh, we would never be more than a, a metre apart, like the whole day, uh, you know, and night. So 24-7, we were just in it, talking, growing, building every, every part of Culture Kings. And I think that was... You know, it's, it's always the thing, what's the most important financial advice is find the right partner. And I think that's what I did in my life. And it's like the partner is someone, like I, I saw this term, it's like a partner is someone you're willing to go to war with. And that is business, right? We all know everyone, like business is war, we're just without the guns. And it's like we were in that battle, in that war though together, side by side. It wasn't like it... And that's where I feel was, you know, I always think that was probably one of the most lucky things that happened to me and, and created the success that we had. It's, it's amazing you say that because I was going to talk to you about this later on, later on in the, in the podcast about this whole thing about, you know, men out there are trying to go out and build these big companies. But, but I think that some of them get taken completely off track w when it comes to like copious amounts of women. Then you've got the drugs and you've got the bottle service and you've got all these things trying to impress upon people. And you basically turn yourself into a people pivot into this life, lifestyle type business. What you've pressed upon so early is that you say, look, get that, get that right woman on your team and, and build something together. So what, what, what are the keys to success in that and to keep the relationship fresh whilst you're in it? Because obviously you're talking about 100 hour weeks here. It's nothing... It's, it's no small thing. Like how, are you, how are you balancing that? So we always were pretty conscious of what we were doing and we would talk out problems that we had. You know, we, we would always have problems just like everyone else. But I would try and consciously put our relationship first, which sounds so hard, but it's actually the most important thing is your intimate relationship, I believe. If you put it above business, if you put it above your kids, if you put it above your work and your mission, you actually can create so much energy from it. It's like the lead domino. Everything else sort of falls in place. And it's like the thing, it doesn't matter how good 
how much money you make, if you're not happy in your intimate relationship, you're not fucking happy. So I, I think that's what we did and we, we spoke about, well, I spoke a lot about my big dreams and visions and Tani had such belief in me. I felt I, I never met anyone that believed in me more than her and I think that's so important in your intimate relationship because, yeah, friends and stuff believing in you can help or your family can sort of help but nowhere near as much as your intimate partner, like so much of the magic comes from that. So, yeah, that was a big catalyst, I believe, in us in nurturing that relationship all the way through that we were we were in it together and we'd burnt our boats. We had nothing but each other and this thing that we'd created and we, we, we made it happen. Do you think it's harder nowadays, Simon, with, with the Instagrams, the TikToks of the world, do you think it's harder for people not to see that some piece of grass might be greener on the other side? Because I think we're all getting indoctrinated personally with a lot of these dopamine hits off seeing other people on Instagram et cetera, et cetera. Like, what is the key, what is the key there? Do you, do you think that's a, a, a factor? Definitely. But I think that's something we all have to be conscious of, of watch out for the cheap dopamine. And that cheap dopamine is, is everywhere. It's sugar, it's caffeine, it's, it's liking or looking at, you know, Instagram at, at random girls or something. Like, you've got to be able to train that discipline. And I think cheap dopamine can just distract so much of your focus and I know for myself is whenever I've channeled it and channeled it in one direction like that's unlocked the magic but doing it with my wife it's always the thing is I just think we'll do so much more for others than we'll ever do for ourselves. and uh, if you if you can get yourself in that sort of relationship I know we sort of in those hardest moments where if I was on myself by myself, I'm sure I would have been really close to the the dreaded quitting stage where we pulled each other through. And yeah, so do you, do you remember do you remember some of those early moments where you wanted to quit? Yeah, definitely. I remember those moments where I you know, the alarm would go off and the thing and we had to go you know, we had the stores and we still had the markets. And I remember pulling up the sheets over my, like, I was so tired and I was just like, just, just, I don't want to go. Like, I don't want to think. Or like when there's problems happening, you know, when you've got like fires starting everywhere, you know, this person's leaving and this software doesn't work and this thing's cooked and you just want to hide under the covers and be like, I don't want to deal with it. I do think though... Because we were, we, we were right there, we couldn't hide from each other. And I think we never wanted to let each other down. So we'd always go pull ourselves through uh, those moments and help each other when we needed that support in, in those, those, those tough, scary moments that every entrepreneur goes through. It's, it's that accountability piece, isn't it? Because you'd literally, you've literally shared your vision with this woman, you're, obviously your now wife, you shared, you shared this vision with her and when, once she said to you, hey, I believe in you, you're like, holy fuck, now I've got to deliver it because like, I, 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 I wasn't expecting you to say that potentially. Exactly. I, was expect, I was expecting you to come back with some little bit of uh, questions or something, but no, she, she fully believed in you from the start. That's kind of what I'm feeling. 
Yeah, 100%. And I, I remember that feeling like she, she, the way she would look at me and talk about me like I was the smartest friggin' person. And, and it made me feel like, honestly, I could run through a fucking wall with that certainty and intensity that would, would come for it. So, and I think this is an important thing. I always try and, you know, with, with women as well, is try and explain, like, that what Tani did for me was so valuable and that... Because a lot of women can, can look at their partner in the judgmental part, you know, when they're telling them their dream and vision and sort of roll their eyes like, oh, yeah, good luck with that, you know. And it's like that's just... We know for a guy it's like a dagger in the heart. It's, it's punishing and... Yeah. Nothing's, nothing's killed me in, you know, more than doubt in any relationship. If, if, there's, if there's doubt there, if there's constant seeds of doubt, anything like that, and they're constantly being planted, it's like how long do you allow doubt doubt to go before you, you cut it off? Because it, it, you cannot have doubt in relationships. It's kind of the biggest killer. Yeah, I agree. You've got you've to go to the root cause and uncover it. And then usually you get to it and you're like, no, it's not doubt. I was just scared i'm scared if you do this that you'll be so successful you'll leave me behind like because that's usually what that role eye roll comes from if you actually unpack it but yeah and uh, it's, it's interesting because you, you that 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 shows me that your experience in relationships is the fact if you go look it's not from, it's not this surface level thing it's not this doubt that you think it is it's it's something way it's it's something layered below that and layered below that so if the, if, if if there's a couple of people on here which there is which there will be listening to it and and thinking look my partner's not fully on board with my mission here and i need to get him or her on board of it what would your advice be then it, it is a great point and i've i've seen this in sort of relationships but the biggest part is that you've got to show up in your best version of yourself and when you do that i've always found when i've created that it's like you create that best version of them as well and what you can't do in a relationship is try and get that transactional point well if I do this you have to do that because once you get the transaction you lose the polarity and the energy of it uh I would really define like who you're going to be and, and what you're going to do tell them your vision and your dreams and how important it is to you and try and not say it from your head but try and say it from your heart i've always tried to think consciously how do you drop into that and then when you do that i think you have more chance of of that connecting and creating that real spark where i want you on my team i want to do this together i want to create this vision in my head and i know it will all be worth it one day it's going to be hard. It's going to be moments where we scream at each other. There's going to be moments when we throw a tantrum and we, we drop our state in that time. But if we keep at it, it will be worth it. And I, I, I always say that the, the greatest thing I got to do, what I love in building College Kings, I love street wearing, but I got to do it with who I love. And I was like, it was effortless. As much as I say... It was hard and all this. When I look back at it, I'm like, oh, you know, it's it's so fun. And that's where, you know, I love now getting to experience the fruits of our labour now. And But it's so cool getting to do it with Tani because we we built it together. It's not like I, I would always say it's all exactly hers. She can spend whatever money 
you know, she can go crazy as much as she wants. You should have seen how crazy she went on this fucking house. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't know she could think this big. You know, I love it. But it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's awesome that we did it together. I think that's one of my things I'm most grateful for. When you, when you speak about the business or, or your message, you're, you're passionate about both elements and one wouldn't equal, equal anything unless the other was involved with you. That's what I've always felt from looking at any of your content. It's like, yeah, I love the business, but I wouldn't have it and it, I wouldn't be happy with this, this so-called semi-exit of this business without my wife. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because this, she made it for me. I think, I think it's so beautiful that people get to see that because so much of social media these days is showing people like, oh, you know, just change it up, change it up, go on Tinder, go on this, go on that, go grab something else, go, um, there's a lot of this red pill, blue pill community stuff, which is showing yeah. all the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris, but without, without the, without the, the, the regular wife nowadays, you know, it, it, it's, it's a special thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I just think as you grow and mature, you start to realize that it's to share it with, you know, that true unconditional love when, uh, that's what we're all sort of chasing. It's it's so much more meaningful than than the little sugary dopamine hit, you know, that you get. Uh, you you must be getting hit up for advice from from a couple of your close business friends like Davy Foggy, Adrian Portelli. They must be looking at you and, and saying to you, "Hey, Simon, what's your advice on this? What is what is some, when when people are operating at the level that Davy, Adrian are? What kind of advice are they asking from people like yourself?" That's a great question. I, I feel it's they I've always got a lot of advice on the deal because going through the transaction, a lot of people haven't had that exit phase. And I always say, like, oh my God, I didn't know anything really until I've gone through the deal and I've learned so much. And I can anyone in that process or thinking about that process, it's like there is so much to learn and little things that you've got to set up in just how you structure it beforehand, things to watch out for in the wording and the contract. But one of the biggest things I say is like if you're going through that process is you need a separate advisor on your side that's not incentivized for the deal to go through because this is the problem. Everyone, when, that, when you're talking that deal, everyone wants the deal to go through because everyone gets paid off it, you know? All the consultants, all the success fee, everything is like, how do we just make this fit for the deal to go through? And that's what I had, was so lucky, I was able to get this advisor that I'd had for about five years before and he was not incentivized in any way on the deal going through, he was just paid by the hour and he could be this reason and this voice of reason talking through the deal that everyone else was just trying to make it fit and that we could truly see that it was a great deal. And I always, he always said this, it's so good, like you never hire a guard dog and bark yourself. And it was so good of how I could use him as the leverage and negotiating and how he went through and, and saved me so much bullet holes because... Uh, yes, of just talking to other founders and etc. too, is they can go through that deal, not have someone on their side. Everyone's incentivized the deal going through, but once it comes out the other side, it's like, oh wait, 
what about this? What about this? And not be as, as rosy as they thought. So that's the advice I sort of give. And, and then there's a lot of like tactical stuff around, you know, how you got to set it up the structure before and get your business in the right position so it's investable. I see some of these ones and I'm like, this structure's not even investable because you've got Division 7A loans and all this, you know, it's like a mess. You've got yeah, to actually clean that up, which you can't do in like a couple of months. It takes like a year or, or longer, two years almost. And I kind of feel, Simon, that, that as you're going through business, you, you, you learn more and more and more about structure that you never, you know, year one, you don't know this, but year five, you have you come across people like yourself in business and they kind of go, well, you know, have you got this holding company here? Have you got this intellectual property company here? Like, is this all sitting behind this? Have you got, how's, how's, how's the structures working? If you get sued, what happens? Like, yeah, have, what, what are the layers of your management level? Like, everything starts to become, you're like, as, an, as a young entrepreneur, you're like, you're sitting there like, holy, f I've never thought of any of this. Like, so you, you've, let's just take it even a step further back so that we can bring it grassroots. Yeah, obviously. Look, a lot had to, a lot had to change to go from market stall that was that was successful doing numbers. You're reinvesting your twenty percent. The first major pivot, I, I presume, you tell me if I'm wrong, is going from market to first retail store. So just walk me through your thought process on that, and what and what and what you could see that was that was different that could allow you to do that. I was at the markets, so from when I finished school, day one, got my first product and, and was like a stuttering mess, you know, you don't want to buy this, do you? And learnt sales, learnt influence, got better and better, but I was there for seven years. And so a lot of people think like, oh, at the markets, you know, like I was there for seven years, but I got better and better week in, week out, and I was training the muscle of sales and influence where I feel... That is such a core skill. If you get good at that, you can transfer certainty to your team. You can influence people to give you deals and negotiation. Everything is so powerful. And I'd built that muscle that once I saw this opportunity that was streetwear, and it was just because my mate sent me a YouTube video of Nigel who had the first, uh, you know, started uh, Bape in Japan and he had the first Bugatti in Japan and he wrapped it pink camo, the first Phantom and he wrapped it green camo. I was like, this guy's like the coolest motherfucker ever. I want to be like that. So I just felt obsessed with streetwear from that one video and research. And then how can I get into this? How can I start? And then started with basically a dicky short at the markets. So it was just next to my stand. I created another one that just sold this one dicky short. And it's just because I was selling and uh, surf stores for a hundred dollars here, but you could buy them at Walmart for sixteen dollars. This is when the dollar was parity. I literally sent my mate in America go to Walmart, buy these shorts, DH them, L them over, sold them. You know, buy another twenty in the next week, buy forty, buy a hundred. You know, and just double down every week. That's how I started in streetwear, and I just had the love for it naturally, and I could sort of see this trend because I, I had this almost like this disdain for surf industry. I was always like, why do people wear this billabong or these are dinosaur brands? I, you know, yeah, this yeah. streetwear is so much cooler. I remember I had like, I had a billionaire boys club shirt in, uh, from Pharrell when he first launched it. I paid like crazy money for it. Like that was oh, more than 20, 20 years ago. So it was before, I, it was right when I was... Uh, 
you know, starting at the markets. And it was just like I, I loved streetwear and I loved what it represented and and I suppose a key shirt that just kicked it for me was this Crooks and Castles one where it had the – so they'd have – it was like the Versace logo but then they put the bandana on top and they got sued by Versace but they won and they could still do it. But I was just like, oh, it's so much cooler than a Versace shirt because it's like – got the sort of status but it's got this fuck you attitude to it which was always streetwear and that's why I just I just loved it and yeah so from that markets I got the first retail store which I just did a cash deal on found the landlord just because I worked out all these school kids Kebra Park they would all peel around this corner in Southport there and I was like I just reckon if we're there we could make enough money did the deal got my mate to put together stuff from Bunnings and stuff to be able to fit it out. And and then, yeah, that was the first sort of retail store. I love it, man. And I think, I think one thing that I've identified through that is the fact of, like, you looked to American culture and what was going on in American culture and where, where the trends were going. And you thought, right, we're in Australia now. If I position myself at the start here and hit this off, we can, we can – we can just ride a wave. Yeah. So you've 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 gone. Okay, I've got the brand. I've got the brand name. I've got everything else. I've got this vision, but I need a set of waves to to roll in on that carry enough momentum to each point along my journey. Is, is, yeah. is that is that kind of what what you foresaw? It's a it definitely. And now you've pointed it out. It was actually what I noticed was that USA would copy Japan. Japan with the top end of the pyramid would really set it back then. Not so much now, but then from the US and then it would trickle down to Australia. So if I sort of could look at Japan, I could get way ahead of the curve and anticipate. But that was, you know, one of the most important things is understanding trends, see which trends are going to more translate to a more mainstream effect and which ones could just be fads and and pass out like... I've always got this wrong. I remember when Davey was doing the Udi, right? I was like, oh, that's a fad. There's no way that thing will last. 200 or $500 million in that one product. It's just like, it, unfreaking believable. Reset my beliefs. And I, I always use that in an example for my team is when someone thinks like, oh, no, this product's done. We have, you know, all the marketing's not working anymore. I'd just pull up the Udi and be like, come on. Like, he can still keep selling this because his marketing is so good the way he can just keep flipping it around and keep reinventing the wheel on it. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the, the the key things that Davey did was he got licensing agreements with, with these brands and licensed their, like, the Disney stuff and the Marvel stuff and the Harry Potter stuff onto the Udi. And that kind of revitalized and, and re-lengthens the trajectory of, of, of that as a clothing brand because you, no one else can just copy it. Um, you know, exactly. you've, different, you've differentiated it. So even though there's loads of dropshippers doing hoodies, they can't do the, the, you know, he was just there with the avocado and, and these kind of things. And now he's got like Disney and, and, and all this Barbie and, hoodie. And those can really work from a content angle of driving in new traffic, even though he can pull them in through the Disney ad but then they just buy the avocado one anyway. You know, that's yeah. where there's a great, you know, I could talk like licensing is amazing when you get it right and you, you do it. And I've had some incredible wins with it. Well, with, uh, well 
I wanted to go straight straight in on licensing as we're talking about it because obviously licensing has been a massive part in what you do. At mark well, not not only licensing but alignment. So you you've done two things in in, in my my vision that's that, that's blew my mind with what you've achieved with Culture Kings. You've obviously got the licensing element, which is where you obviously associate your brand with someone else's and you put them together. But you've also done it with people as well, where you've done it with a lot of rappers and a lot of the culture. So you know, part of Culture Kings. His whole DNA, I feel, has been has been collaboration. So walk me through the collaborations and licensing deals that you've kind of done and structured and how they came about. Yeah, so licensing didn't come to a, a much later, and I wish I knew about it earlier, but I didn't really find out about it till maybe five years ago or something. But the first collaboration came was just basically uh a lot of of luck in that we had uh, the Superfest was in town and one of the guys from the entourage of Snoop was there and it was like, oh, and I was working, could we get Snoop to come in, working out a deal and then sort of like, is this possible? And then I was like with Tani, oh, they're on the way to this barbecue if they could stop by on the way and we could sort of, you know, a little bit of paper bag and a little bit of influence and then next minute we had the whole Superfest crew through our little store in Southport. And this was, you know, the guys were amazing, but the problem is they had this enormous entourage. It's like there must have been 50-plus in the entourage. And they sort of just thought this was an opportunity to everything's free, right? So they're taking stuff left and right. We're trying to be like, wait, like they're paying for this but not this. And then it was... Uh, it was a mess and we lost so much product. But I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, what do we do? How do we get it? I remember Snoop said to me, don't worry. This will all be worth I'll make it. I'll make this worthwhile for you. And he did a Twitter post or posted us on Twitter. And I've got this drop of him saying, he's good. You know, Snoop's got him. I, you know, I'll look after him. And then it was so good. We actually leveraged that in the marketing and, like, we had hardly any stock left because we'd lost so much, but it just went nuts. And then we had the record day in Brisbane, our store in Brisbane. And then from then, I was like, every tour that comes to town, how do we intercept the tour and how do we become as part of the journey to the event? So I always thought of this. People don't need new clothes to sit at home on the weekend. We buy new clothes when we're going somewhere. Event-based retail, I sort of said. And I was like, well... If we could intercept when people are going to this festival and associate that a festival with us, and it's like, well, the artist comes here and gets clothes and wears them at the festival. So, of course, they want to get clothes from here and wear them to the festival. And that's what we worked out how to do. And we did it with every sort of promoter as they're bringing in artists and try and line them up before to work in direct with the artists. And I would always try and make it organic as possible. Like sometimes, you know, we'd pay them for meet and greets and stuff to get photos, but then they'd always shop organically. And that's the thing that I wanted was the content of them just shopping organically was actually the most valuable because it was so real and authentic. And especially when they wore the clothes, you know, later going to the airport or the on stage. And this is one of the biggest things is that I didn't realise what a gap we did all these people are travelling basically their entire life. They 
do not do the washing. So they need a new outfit every day, sometimes two or three outfits a day. They need just the most insane volume of clothes. So we were actually the perfect sort of partner of like, well, here's a couple of grand worth of stuff. They didn't have to do any washing or do the thing and we'd give them all the duffel bags and the suitcases with it. It was just... That's something early on that we really caught on to. And then as they wear it after, um, you know, we could capture that content, shopping at Culture Kings, reuse it and, and really make it that it was such an authentic relationship. And that's where I always thought is that we could position those right collaborations. They were never forced. Like I always thought when I used to see like billboards with George Clooney or something and it's like, you know, tag Hewer and he's like this. And I'm like, who's that convincing to buy? It's so inauthentic. It's so, like, it's that natural relation. And what you're seeing right now, why does lo-fi content work so good on TikTok is because it is more authentic. It's more genuine. That's what you see every ad that's crushing now. As much as you can drop it down and authentically do it because, like, we, we just tune out to too much of the smoke and mirrors and the the big billboard that I always saw back, you know, in the early days. I think it's the authentic nature that they they really wear the clothes. They really like the store. It's not like this stand here, take a photo, do this, pose here, and then they leave. You know, we never S had that. So where you've kind of differentiated everything is you've gone, look, we're seeing the markets telling us that the more authentic the content, the the warm the warmer it is for everybody. In terms of like the the more leads we're going to get from, from people coming in genuinely, the better the artist is going to feel. The better our relationship with the artist is going to feel. So, so the every everyone from business to consumer and artist wins in that in that relationship. So what you actually created there was a win win win. Yeah, which which a lot of businesses, what you're saying is they're creating a win loss. So your whole role as an entrepreneur is to create a win 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 or a win win in every situation. So how can more brands, more people out there building brand, go and create that win win relationship? What are other ways to do that? The big thing to create that alignment of win win, and I, I love the way you put it, win win win, because you're right. Everyone won out of that situation. Is that We've got to be, you've got to create that we're on the same team and that it's not transactional. The thing is, I've always thought in business, if anything just worked once, it wasn't worth doing because, and I'm prepared to lose money on anything the first time because it's all in the perpetual motion of it. So if someone ever came and it was always a one-off deal, I always thought it didn't make sense. But if there was a true they felt value out of it and that we would keep doing it. That's where all the, the long-tail success comes in business. And, and I think that's too where sometimes with negotiating, I might have been like I can, I can be the first one to give in on a negotiation or something, not that hard a negotiator because I'm more like, well, let's just try it and, and see because if we get the synergy and we get it to work, We'll, we'll be able to work it out long term, but I'm not trying to, I never try and think, how do I make money on the first, the first deal? It's all right, about yeah. how do I create something that's go, gonna perpetually keep going and, and growing? So that's, that's something I would advise. And I, I suppose the best way to do this is 
I saw Athletic Greens do this amazing company, you know, billion dollar valuation. Making Built off the deal. back of podcasting? Yes, but the thing they did with podcasting, which was so clever, which I don't, I haven't seen anyone else do this, is that they aligned the influencer long term. So, example, Andrew Huberman, when he says the code Huberman, they would pay him on the lifetime value of someone that used that code because they're all set up for subscription. So he's still getting checks on people like me that signed up for Athletic Greens five fucking years ago. He's still getting the money today off that one coupon code. So he's he doesn't get paid like for doing that. He gets paid on a purely a commission lifetime value of the customer. So it's such a long-term alignment. So that's where he's so congruent and he says it and it feels so authentic with his relationship of how he does it and you get such a long tail of it. So I think how you can really align with influencers over lifetime value and that you're not paying them up front. Like it yeah. has to be commissioned. They have to have skin in the game. That's the key is when they're getting paid to post this no matter what, like we've all seen it, they can do the most half-ass fucking bleh, next, like hold it. Like they, it's not worth anything. It has to be congruent and authentic. And if you can't negotiate that, just find someone that will and – that's what you should, because as well, on the influencer side, I'm always trying to coach him of like, don't, could you imagine if LeBron James did one week, oh, here's my new Nike the next day. No, here's New Balance the next day. Here's Adidas. He would lose all of his authority, would be gone instantly. And this is what so many influencers do is they chop and change and jump around. You just kill your effectiveness with your audience is Find the right brands that align with and then get aligned on lifetime value. And this is what we're seeing the best deals ever, like the Messi Miami deal, like equity, the Conor McGregor proper 12. This is why, you know, Skims, Kim Kardashian, this is why those big influencers, when the right equity deals, they'll be billions and billions. Every big influencer will be a billionaire, I believe, because they will be able to leverage that right deal to do those and you've just seen it with the top of the top, but that's going to keep dropping down because they are so important in driving it. Um, that's what I sort of see. But they have to remember their brand is so important. They can't dilute their brand by chopping and changing, by doing things that that they lose credibility in the market for. There's there's one thing that I've always done is I've never I've never run an ad on this podcast since since its inception. I've done nearly 170 episodes. Um, you know, and we're, we're doing phenomenal numbers now. Mm. And, the th and the reason for that, Simon, is because, like, I don't, I don't want to be associated with XYZ brand for all this kind of rubbish, you know, something I don't believe in. I was told f through business before I started the podcast, it's like the longer you can delay yeah. the money, the better, the better it's going to be for everybody, for the audience, for you, because everything aligns more authentically. And even though that is sometimes gets to the position where it can be painful because you're constantly like you're paying out, you're creating content, you're putting value into the marketplace. But it's all about putting more deposits in than you're trying to receive. 
And I think over a period of time, if you can deposit more and deposit more and deposit more and deposit more, eventually you create what they term as an avalanche that comes back your way. And I think that, that that's kind of what I see Culture Kings have done, haven't they? they? They've kind of made so many deposits along the way that it was inevitable that you were going to get a snowball that rolled down the hill at one point. You, ju you just had to wait long enough. And stacking, the, so not only the brand part, but also the money, right? Because as well, we were putting all the money back into the business. We were turning over $50 million and Tani and I were paying ourselves $150,000 each. No dividend, right? We were like, it's real to $50 million business, self-funded. Like, no, nah, 150, because we're rolling the whole lot each time. And that was the thing, is that when people were so shocked, like, what the fuck, Culture King, 600 million, how, how can that be? But it's because it was just stacked in there and it was that compounding machine exactly like you're talking you're building on your brand was building we're building on the brand but building it financially by pouring all that money in you see it mr beast is like the most brilliant example of it of of how much he just pours back into each video which makes him unstoppable like he I, when you tried to raise that thing at like a billion, I was trying from every, I would invest in it. Like that is the biggest screaming bargain because his brand equity that he's built is just, you can't even measure it. It's so, so freaking powerful. Well, it, it's, the, it's the equivalent to when what, uh, Facebook bought WhatsApp and everyone's saying 18 yeah. billion was, was overvalued. Yeah. Not really, because you think about the database you get with that kind of business and, and they weren't effectively monetized. And you know, you, you you get you get something like that. That's the same. That's the same thing that you've seen in Mr. Beast, isn't it? You've seen that he's he's really under monetized at the minute compared to the brand that he's built. Yeah, and 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 that is the hardest part in those early stages to not take the money off the table, to not do it. And and you know what? As well, too. I also talk to some founders too, and I I always say this. I'm like. Maybe I took a little bit to the extreme because what I would pay now, or I always say this is like, fuck, I wish we spent another million bucks on just holidays in our 20s because we could have actually afforded it. We wouldn't have, you know, done the thing. But it's like now I can never get that back. No matter how much money, no matter how many holidays we can go, I can never get the ones back in our 20s, right? So it is, you know, and I do think we were just very double down, double down. And that's why we went to that process of, wanting to do the sale and take some of the money off the table because, like, it's it can be a drug, this success, this growth, is that you just, just like anything else, you just chase it and chase more and more and more when I know I've, I've spoken to those ones and spoken to these founders, older ones and billionaires, where I'm like, shit, they would, they would give all of it away to be in their 20s again and be zero, like, that's the thing but the caveat i want to remind you of simon the caveat to what you just said is this it's important to remember that you were fulfilled right the way through the journey with what you were doing and that's why you got rid of the holidays because you didn't need them because you were fulfilled in what you were doing True. and most yeah. people that listen to this they don't have two things they don't have a direction and they don't have fulfillment in what they're doing because they've never sat down with themselves long enough to understand, okay, this is why I want to, this is, why am I actually doing this? Who, who is this actually for? What is this actually for? They've probably never had that conversation. And that's where you can lead yourself to getting trapped in this lifestyle business where you earn, let's just say one to five million a year. You pull out 
two and a half million if you're earning five, you pull out half a million if you're earning a million. And then they, and then they wonder why they're stagnated with growth. They, they lack direction, they lack fulfillment in what they're doing. So how can people, because lived, I lived in Australia for eight and a half years in the Gold Coast. It's an unbelievable place, but so many people in the Gold Coast specifically earn phenomenal money, have phenomenal little businesses, but never scale past a certain point because they, the, they love the lifestyle too much. Quick one for you guys. This podcast is sponsored by contentremover.com. As many of you are probably aware, I set up contentremoval.com in 2017 to help people remove all forms of online content. And I've looked after some of the biggest names and brands in the world doing it. And I would love to help you if you're struggling. If you're struggling to remove images, videos, search results, fake accounts, or anything online, go to contentremoval.com and we'll help you today. How do you get out of that mindset where you just love the lifestyle so much and you're living it for that moment that you, you, that you cut yourself off from the growth? I... I think, though, it can be a conscious choice. Like, some people will want that lifestyle. We were so... For me, I always had this thing. I never wanted to be a small business. I hated the term. I hated that feeling of, like, you know, Aussie battler. I'm just... I never... I wanted to be... I just wanted to break out of that stage and not get referred to as a small business. I wanted a big team... I wanted to hire as many people as I could. I wanted to be able to grow and expand to break away from that that Aussie battler, Aussie little Aussie business mentality. Because I, so that's where I was prepared to sort of just you know to sacrifice some of the lifestyle to double down on our dream. And I always had this vision from very early days when I saw Coach Kings. And I remember we, we, you know, when it was really working and humming and I was like, I know this can work everywhere around the world. And I'd vision it. I'd build it into my morning meditation where I'd be like, you know, Champs-Élysées in Paris, London, you know, Dubai Mall, uh, Shibuya, Japan and Las Vegas, Caesars Palace. I visioned all these iconic cities around the world, building these iconic stores that created the feeling, the state, the emotion, created the brand that then you connect that emotion that when they go away from there you remarket them with their phone number you remarket them on facebook ads that they remember the brand they click through and buy and you you build the biggest e-commerce streetwear retailer in the world with these iconic stores and i always thought this like what full locker does with a thousand stores i could do with 50 that was my that was that was the vision and i i from very early but i didn't I, I did what we could afford, right? I couldn't go straight to bloody, you know, London, Oxford Street. You know, I had to just go, okay, here, Sydney. We couldn't go on George Street. We went underground, you know, but we could create more of the hype and stuff to it. Melbourne, we had to go a little bit out. We had to go, we had to choose the places that we could afford because we were always funding it from free cash flow where we could have raised all this money and tried to swing for the for the hilt, but I, I'm sure there would have been a very high chance we would have blown it up in the same time. But didn't that also work for you because the suburbs and the places that you were putting these in were very like street cultural suburbs of, uh, uh, you know, of Australia? Because like Southport is, is very, is more cultured, let's say, in, in the Gold Coast than say Broad Beach, you know? Nah, you, you, that was just, that was just the cheapest place. Like literally homeless <laughs> people sleeping out the front been vacant forever i could do a cash deal 
month-to-month rent. That's, that's why we started there. There was no cultural relevance in that choice. It was just what we could afford at the time. And I always positioned, I always tried to go CBD locations because I wanted it to be like the luxury stores. So, you know, luxury like Louis Vuitton, all that would be in the CBD. And I wanted people to travel to it, you know, from, from out in the suburbs, from out west to come into the city to go, I'm going to Culture Kings, you know, and to make it that journey. People don't value what they don't fight for. Part of that journey there created more of the feeling, the emotion, the brand identity to it. And we we could have just rolled out in all the shopping centres. We had all those deals like Westfield. They would scream for us, right, because we'd put on a show and bring all these people. But we didn't take that that sugary dopamine. We we stayed for the long term on that and and focused more online, which was very hard in those early days. It was fucking brutal, you know, the magenta on the websites crashing and all the stuff and all the, all the, everyone we were competing with online was just losing money hand over fist. Like, remember the surf stitches and the Iconics and stuff, you know, Iconics lost half a billion dollars since it's been going, you know, it's like you're going against these big loss leading beasts where we were always trying to be profitable, um, but we put that effort into online and we're, we're making a lot of money in stores and just pouring it into the online part because I knew long term there's no way this is going to work with a store network where you have a crappy little store with a tiny little range, one person working in it, no atmosphere, no vibe, 20 minutes away you've got another store with the exact same crap in it. There's no way that would work if I just had one flagship with all the range, all the thing, all the theatre plus the online e-com with the Bunnings-sized warehouse that has every option, that has all the shipping and fulfilment and that really builds a brand and status. I was always like, that was the whole, what I could do with 50 stores compared to the Foot Locker 1,000. That was always that analogy I had from the early days and that was part of the strategy to pour it in uh, online. It, 100%, 100% your experience base because when I remember walking in there when you opened in Pat Fair, I think there was a basketball hoop in there. You've got these um, arcade machines that you can grab yeah. stuff out of. You get When you buy something, you get a free free coin to put in this machine on the way out. The, the, the way, the, the tiling on the floor, the lighting, the ambience, the music, the DJs, everything's, everything's, everything's all experience-based. You know, you're the most fun store to be in 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 Pack Fair, and Pack Fair is a beautiful shopping center. But it's definitely the most fun store to be in. How does that translate from? Obviously, it's a lot of expense to create that. But how's that translate onto like what you sell and the average order value of a customer? Uh, well, I always believed people weren't buying the product; they were buying the feeling, the emotion that product gives to it because otherwise we'd all just shop at Kmart and wear a $10 crew neck, right? Why would any of these brands exist? It's because of the feeling and the emotion. I knew the store was so central in creating that theatre and atmosphere that we could make people with the music and stuff and then remember us, anchor in those great positive feelings and then when they were back at home or on their computer and they got hit with an ad, they'd remember it. And because that's the thing is we just get hit with so many ads, but we just scroll past them. Unless there's emotion connected to it, and that's what we allowed our physical stores to create that, resonate the brand, get the perception of the brand. Perceived value is value. I got this whole thing. I studied LVMH and how they do it. Like you've got to perceive, perceive value is fucking value and you've got to create that. And 
yeah. And then we, and we linked it. That was such the crucial part. All that was the dopamine hit of, of giving the tokens. He got the chance of winning, the, the, you know, more thing to remember, more reason to come back, more thing, more points to tell other people about it. Oh, they got this basketball and this guy won this pair of Jordans or, you know, everything that we would do to try and create that top of mind brand awareness. Well, it's also the store actually turns into a content house because it is it, it's like you can use all the all the natural content of people being surprised as they get this this and this and this as it shot around the store and you can use that in your in your facebook and i've seen you guys use it in facebook instagram everything like that all the all the ads TikTok stuff like that you're using that to curate the experience then using the experience and the shot visual of that to go and create the feeling online aren't you essentially 100%. if you looked at our hundred best pieces of content over the last five years I guarantee 95 of them would be in store. Like that's, that's what it is. And it was so organic to use the staff and the congruent part and make it as free flowing as you can. It was always, I always think is like, I wish I lent harder into that um, when I got that feeling about it. Like, do we need all these SLRs? Do we need all these videographers? Do we need all these campaign shoots? And I just wish I had the... Uh, balls to just scrap all that shit earlier and put all that money yeah. into the store theater and show and having those content creators in store um that that's what i you know hindsight i would have done earlier to uh to scale it because i i remember getting that feeling but it's it's that thing is you don't want to buck the trend it's like because especially creatives in their field this is one of my biggest lessons i say when you employ creatives or you're creative yourself you have to watch out we get in our own little eco chambers and like this happens in any creative field like videographers will make videos to impress other videographers right chefs cook shit to impress other chefs journalists write shit to impress other journalists but it gets past the market if you do a bell curve it's way up this the thing is you've got to bring it back to where the market is and that's where Sometimes, too, for their ego, they don't want to do it like a chef doesn't just want to cook a T-bone steak with a nice Cafe de Paris butter because that's so fucking easy. Anyone could do it when it's like, but it's the fucking best and it's what the customer wants and I'll pay 75 fucking dollars for it. It's 82 margin because, it's the, you know, and that's the thing that that's that business side dealing with creatives. I always say cr creatives are amazing. You have to create constraints and guardrails for them to operate in. If you don't have guardrails, they'll fucking you know, they'll go way past the market every time. Yeah, and they'll always operate in those, just just past the rail of no return in terms of like, you know, they've created this masterpiece, but it doesn't connect the same way. And that's why when we take it back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, how this how this um, organic content that's shot on an iPhone will do better than a, um, a highly produced video because a highly produced video has been too overthought of too, gone too far past the guardrail and and that's where you get the problems now something you've been fantastic about from from day one and you've been constantly talking about it throughout this podcast is your vision your vision how are you how what what your daily practices and how are you instilling this vision that you have i know you've know you've been uh, involved in tony robbins in the past and you've got you, you probably have vision boards and everything else like walk me through that because i really want to uh, because obviously one thing as well i've the key thing that I want people to get to really pick up on this podcast is is listen to the state that Simon is in now, his state and and 
the creation from his mind because he's put himself in this prime state. And I want, I want you to teach people, Simon, how they can get into that prime state themselves. That's, that's essentially what I'm saying. Yeah. So a big thing I've always done is goal setting. 99% of people don't do it or they don't do it properly. Where I was from, like I said, I wrote down at school, I want to be an entrepreneur from day one. I never want to work for anyone. But I didn't just like write it down and hope it. Like I would always look at it. I would always bring it top of mind. I would always be creating this is who I'm going to be. This is the skills. This is who I want to be. And I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to be that. Um, I wrote down, and this is like I talk about my relationship with Tani. I wrote down a goal of who do I want my partner to be? And I wrote down stuff like I want to work with them. I want to, I saw my parents have this relationship. They were in business together and I was always thought, oh, I just love to have that working together like you're just in the, in the arena together. And I always said, we're going to work together. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want someone that's just off playing fucking tennis or, or something. I want someone in there with it that I can share and pitch and be vulnerable and we, we fight together. And that was, I wrote all these sort of goals down um, like... My whole life I've had goal setting, which is from long-term, medium-term, short-term, uh, weekly, and then, you know, I'll even set outcomes for the day. And just tr- I try and even bring it into the thing, consciously intention, before I do anything, before I have dinner with the kids, before I have, well, what could I get out of this? How could I add the most value? Like just setting that intention all the way micro down. So goal setting, but then the state so, and those goals have got to excite you. They've got to be something I like to say. It's like, like my goal of that vision of the thing is like when I was a kid when I wrote that, I'm like, that's something willing to have a crack. Even if I fail, it'd be worth having a crack to try and pull that off. It, it's, it's like it's, you've got to have it big enough that it really excites you and gives you that energy. And then try and really visualise as much as I've done it. I've visualised like the store openings. I've even, I've visualised way out into the future, you know, which is probably going to change. But like where I was like, I was going to fly to each store opening in a private jet, get off, you know, do the onboarding with all the team, ignite them into this fucking energy, like they're ready to run through a wall. We open the door, we break records, we have the best fun and then we get on the jet and go do it again in another country. Like I visioned it, but really detailed. And I have the most crazy stories of this and, yes, vision boards and from houses, even this crazy story like this boat I've got out the front. In 2016, I watched this uh, video clip, uh, Purple Lamborghini, and it had this boat in it. I'm like, I don't even like boats, but I'm like, that's the fucking sickest boat. Like, that's the coolest looking boat I've ever seen. And I screenshotted it. And then I just chucked it on my... So I was screenshotting and I just chucked it on my vision board. Oh, one day I'm going to get a boat like that. Anyway, crazy. We did the deal and I was always like, I've got to get a boat. We live on the water. I always want to boat. Looked at all different ones and I've always, I've always wanted one of those Van Dutch ones. I've already, it was only two for sale, one in Italy, one in Miami. Anyway, during COVID, I did the deal, brought it from Miami, sight unseen, you know, million US or something. They shipped it here. We got it off the, the dock and the guy goes, Oh, you know what's crazy? This boat was in this vi- was in a video clip. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, it's in this video clip. Purple Lamborghini. This is the actual boat from it. I'm like, what the fuck? That's on my vision board. The actual fucking boat, and now it's sitting out the front of our fucking house. It's like crazy when when you have a vision and you 
You don't just think, but you've got to you've got to look at it and it's got to shift your state. It's got to get you excited. Like I'm getting so fucking excited talking about it, right? Because it to me it was the vision gives you the energy to push through the hard times. And whenever I would sort of get off track or something, I would sort of relate like, wouldn't this be cool if we pulled this off? Wouldn't this be worth it? Wouldn't the value and focus on that outcome and it gives you that energy you need to to push through and make it happen. So goal setting, vision boards, morning routine, I still do discipline, try and change. Like within a minute of getting up, I go straight in my cold plunge, um, two minutes, uh, I pop out, I do all my um, vitamins and stuff, I do Wim Hof breathing, then I'll do in the gym and then I'll finish with like a priming meditation, I'll play with the kids for during breakfast and stuff and, and then I'll get into work and set my intention of what I'm going to do and that's, I've had that, like the cold plunge thing I've never missed in like five years. So... Um, it's that discipline so so when you talk about morning routine as an entrepreneur you're one of the entrepreneurs that's been doing that on the route to their success where I see a lot of entrepreneurs talk about morning routines now after they've had a a 500 million exit for argument's sake and they've just created that but they were never doing that they were just getting up and doing the work when they were when they were on the pursuit of it so you're actually saying that the morning routine that you've just stated there is what you were doing when you were building it a hundred percent, the whole time. I only brought the cold plunge in about, well, about six years ago, 2017. Actually, might have even been the end of 60. But um, then we, but I'd been doing that meditation, visualisation. I, I got Tony Robbins. I used to steal all his books when I was at school off LimeWire and stuff. Remember, you used to download it off. Yeah. I, that, I used to jack it all and listen to it all back then. And then I've been a big fan. I've gone to all his seminars and stuff. I love him. He's, he's the GOAT. Um, and I've got so many valuable tools that I've implemented in my daily life that I know I wouldn't have achieved what we achieved and without it together. Because you, you, must, you must be on his level, like business mastery level and all that kind of, kind of level of... of, of stuff how's that how how's that how's being involved in in that level of the tony robbins ecosystem how is how is it like evolved and conceptualized in your life it's like that that tony uh that business mastery i've done it probably like four or five times because it's it's so much content in a compressed time you've really got to like i think a lot of people skip over it's there's some real heat in there but you've got to be really in the state, in the zone, document it, come back, really disciplined, implement it into your business. Because a lot of people too in that environment, they'll get in and they'll do all the jumping and, and, and they'll play full out, but they're not willing. The second they leave that environment, they, they drop again. You've got to be able to sustain that and keep that momentum and energy and put it into action. I think... Uh, that's where some people can get on this constant going to event to event, you know, getting this dopamine hit off that. It's the same thing. It's like anything too much can be damaging. You've got to, you've got to take the lessons, internalise it, implement it, get your own results, pivot on it, create your own, reteach it. I would always find too when I'd reteach it to the staff, I could learn it even better myself and better make sure I, I know the concepts and how to implement it. And, yeah, I, I reckon that 
that business mastery is better than like, you know, a business degree, honestly. That, you, you rate it at that kind of level? Yeah. Yeah. But, but you've got to be able to take the knowledge and implement it. I think still a lot of people can be there and it can be like, Shoo, but you've got to, uh, but that's why I've done it. Like, I didn't just do it once, you know. I've got at what, at what stage that. of business do you think that you'd need to be at like revenue wise to, to warrant going there and it actually being valuable to you? Mm, I still feel like, well, revenue wise and profit are two different things, but I think if you could, like in e-commerce world, you can scale to like 5 million or something yeah. pretty easily with a very small team. You could get there without having to go to any of that. But, you know, some other sort of businesses that, have huge profit margins that I would get in there a lot earlier, you know, like oh, lots of consulting or different ones that you could get a lot. I would I would do it earlier if you're making like 500,000 profit or something. I would jump in there. Yeah. I I, I agree with you to, to, to a massive extent. I, I've been to a lot of events myself and, the, and, the, and I found myself in the early days I'd go to events and I wouldn't implement from the event. Whereas later days, now I'm going to Joe Dispenza, I'm doing the meditations after I leave Joe Dispenza, I'm, I'm going and learning off different people and I'm implementing it in my life and I'm seeing the changes. I think a lot of people go to a lot of these successful resources events that I see all around the world, which is like the entry level to this kind of personal development space and they kind of, they go for the flashing lights and see all the speakers but they, they come away from it and they wonder why they're having to go back month after month after month and it's because it, the implementation is the key that, you, that you've just said there. If you're not going to implement it, there's no point consuming the information, right? Yeah, 100%. And that is, I made that mistake as well in the earlier days of going there and then coming straight out of it and then just going straight back in the routine. You've got to implement those actions that you're going to do and, and jolt them into your daily or weekly practices in how you're going to use those and review that over time and stuff. Tony and I, um, we spent so much time talking about relationship because we just got back from a big relationship one with, with Tony Robbins and I've got like, you know, a whole A4 book of notes and I just reviewed it the other day and it's just like, oh wow, there's so much to work on and keep doing like to, to improve in the relationship even more. With that, what was, the key, what was the key thing that you learned about Tani that you didn't know before you went on that retreat? I suppose the, the thing that we always forget as men is that like they do this thing where they say uh, what guy has ever felt his life threatened in the last year, right? And like out of 500 people, two, two guys will raise their hand. And then they say what girl here has had their life threatened, have felt their life has been in danger in the last year? And like 98% of girls raise their hand. And it's wow. just this thing is they... They need this safety and so much of what we do or their reaction back, which could be anger or frustration, it's just fear underneath that, that they're actually scared. They're scared of the safety. They need to feel that, that you're there. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to leave. You're going to be there to protect her, to worship her for fucking ever. And if you, if you give her that, like you are, and when they feel safe, they open. And when they open, we're like the happiest motherfuckers ever. And I think that's that thing is just we forget to make them like that. The, the, they put this facade, 
which is usually that masculine energy that comes through of, of like the fear of frustration or the, the anger, but it's actually they're just scared underneath it. And you've got to take that fear away by giving them the presence, by making them feel understood, by making them feel that, making them feel safe. And it sounds so simple, but it's missed. I, I mean, when uh, I think back to my um, previous relationships and stuff like that, that that's, that's, that's the thing that's been massively missed. And that's why there's chaos, because I probably haven't given that feeling of safety. So if, and, if you, and if you give that feeling that, that there's something always going to change and you're on this ship that's going like this in the waves, and there's, and there's no, how can they bring you peace unless you give them safety first? Exactly. Yeah. That's what that's what you just taught me. Like, yeah. and I hope a lot of you get that that listen to this because I, I think as men we always say one of the things that I, I say all the time. I'm like, all of what is peace, all of what is peace. Yeah. But how can you bring me peace unless you feel safe and secure in the fact that I'm not going to fuck yeah. off anywhere? Like, do, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? I think that that that's what that's what we've all got to get got to get clear. Obviously, look, you get this deal put on the table, and you decide it's time to to take to take to take cash off to cash off the table, and you obviously took I think it was three hundred seven seven million in cash off the table, out the deal. Was it an anticlimax, or was it as buzzing as I imagine it probably could be? Uh, like I went through all the work of I wanted it to go in my original Dolomite account. You know, you start off with Commonwealth Bank as a kid, you know, in that first bank account. Because I always remember that feeling of going to the ATM, you know, going like, whoa, is it going to, like, can I get the 20 bucks out? And so I wanted the whole, we dropped the whole 300 into that account. And I remember I ran, the second we're like, it's gone through, I'm refreshed, refreshed. I'm like, oh, shit. And then going to the ATM just to do a little check balance to get the receipt. Um, but... After that, it was it was it was a little bit like because we're still in the business and still running. It was like, oh, well, back to work, you know, because we're working on the big IPO coming up. But I don't, I I do think it was this. It wasn't this moment that, and that's the thing is, you've got to enjoy the journey because it's it is going to be anticlimax. There isn't this euphoric buzz. It's more creating, like that's, that's my real goal now, is how do I create as much of those magic moments in the daily life as possible and leveraging as much of that time to create those little magic. And lots of those don't freaking cost any money, you know. It's just about time and leverage and, and freedom. And I suppose that's the best thing that it gave is the freedom is that, and this is the other thing, running that business, you know, even hundreds of millions of dollars in turnover, you know, hundreds and hundreds, almost thousands of staff, the pressure never releases. And I try and tell this to entrepreneurs. It didn't, like, I thought, you know, once you get to 10 million, surely it will go. Once 50, once 100, once 200. It doesn't, right? I would still wake up with even more so of like, fuck, we need half a million dollars. The wage bill's half a million dollars this week. And it's, that pressure never released. But when we did get that 300 and it dropped, and it was this thing, I did actually feel it release because it was never like because everything before that was all up we had zero assets basically apart from that you know so you, so you had zero zero assets 
in the world well, until, until... Apart from the business, we had our house. And say even if we had $10 million in the account, that never felt safe because you'd have a bill due worth $2 million on Monday and then $3 million due there. And it was always in and out. It was always dropping mm. and going down to $4 million, then back up to $15 million, then down to $3 million. Like It never felt like that was your money because it was always spinning around so once you had that 300 and it was separate and it was done and it wasn't attached to the business in any way that's where it was like you know and you start doing all the numbers you know like oh my god we could spend ten thousand dollars a day for the next 300 fucking years so we wouldn't run out of money you know it's just like oh, okay <laughs> yeah. we're good you know but but but, but then but i think when you get 300 million i, I would i would that becomes a problem of its own, I'd think. Like in terms of like, you can't just leave 300 million cash in the bank. I mean, uh, although it's nostalgic and you've put it in your dollar my account and you're thinking you go and get the receipt. After you've done that, you can't just, money. if money sits there, it goes, right? So yeah. how, how, have you, how have you safely allocated in terms of percentage-wise to say, okay, right, well, we can spend this much. This much has got to be invested in this. This much has got to be go over here. Like how, how have you worked all that out in your mind to make yeah, sure so that you, you're growing it? We worked out a bit like, you know, I could spend this much on on trophies and toys, you know, because I've, I've always would justify to Tani, I've gone without for so long, I've got all this pent up, you know, so I went a bit nuts there. But, um, but then we sort of allocated and then we allocated this money's for investing, these, this money's passive investing, this money's just going to sit in cash and not fucking touch it, which is crazy because you can get like 5.4% in the bank now, so it's just like... Fuck, yeah. it's, you know, just fucking leave it there, you know, with everything going on in the world. And then you've got, um, but then we've got, uh, you know, something that I've allocated for my own investing in stuff that I want to do in the in the future and drive and be sort of a real um, lead in. But we sort of just set it up and when I'm trying not to, um, I, I learned this a bit at the start. And this guy told me, this founder, said, don't touch it for six months. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I was like, oh. And then we brought this, you know, this penthouse was a mad deal in Surface, you know, for $15 million at auction. But it was, it was actually a really good buy. But, um, and then I did a couple of investments where I look back now, you know, and that was 2021, you know, tech ones and stuff and just valuations were just nuts and i was just like the charlie munger saying for a man with a hammer everything looks like a nail and that was a problem for having the 300 everything every opportunity looked like a nail um and i i've sort of so i i didn't i stopped doing all that now i'm much slower i've got an investment committee we bring it to the investment committee between tiny i and a third party individually so we can go over it i've got to more pitch it so it's not just shoot by the hip and do deals quick because that's the thing that I really learned. To be an investor is a totally different skill set to being an entrepreneur because an entrepreneur is all driven on emotion. Like, let's go, let's make it happen. Let's just duct tape shit and stick it together and go. Where being an investor is so much different. It's, it's thinking like the chess moves, the next 10 moves ahead of how it will do it. How can we hedge it? You know, and it's just, it's no emotion because when you get emotion involved on investing, it's where it can go all wrong. Have Shark Tank been in been in touch yet? Nah, nah, not yet. But I'd love to. I love to help those, those, you know, heaps of um, young ones on the hustle. I truly believe it's we're in a game changing opportunity for new businesses where you can 
run them so lean and so fast and just destroy the dinosaur companies, the big slow ones out there that are going to be so slow to adapt. Where's the blue ocean at the moment that you see that's, that's, that's completely untapped that people can roll into? My thing is where do you look for where first principles have been reset from a new technology? And that's the, that's the thing is that AI is creating that all the time is, well, you don't need all these people. It can be so much more streamlined. It can be – I still think like that whole creator and the content deal-making side with big influence like the Proper 12 and that, that is – there's still so many more. And I think that can be done on a more micro scale as well rather than these influencers popping up, you know, paying per post for brands, just building their own smaller brand but really taking people on the journey, every part of it that's something that's really passionate to them. I think that's – got um, still a lot of legs and just how lean you can run it. You can run it so lean. Like, you can get these businesses, you know. I suppose Adrian Patelli is the biggest example of 60 million with no employees. What the – I didn't yeah, even think yeah. that was possible. But I, I, I believe you get 50, 60 million with like five or six people. But yeah. um, that's what I sort of see is the opportunity. And, and just like Adrian Patelli, you just took the – the car raffle you saw in every shopping centre and just brought it into a digital space. There's still so many of those. I was going through that on that Young Rich list the other day and it's like so many of those people have just taken an old concept and redone it with digital and used social media ads and boom. Well, it, it, it links back to what you did. You, you, took, yeah. you took American pop, pop culture um, stuff and made it popular in, in Australia and then took it back to the US once you'd made it how you wanted to with an Australian flair and took it back into the US market that way. It's like it's, it, it, it's, it's, it shows similar DNA right the way through the process. And I think the process that you're actually teaching is how to objectively look at something and say, well, that. If, if AI has just come into this space or if, or if technology has improved in this space, some of these companies within this space are so dialed into doing it one way that they can't pivot as fast as what we can. And you can, and that's how people like Afterpay came in and ZipPay yeah. and, and, and they just come in and, and they took credit card companies by surprise and they've all had to follow suit because of that, right? There's yeah. blue oceans in every industry. You've just got to be able to... Um, bring enough passion and energy to... Because that initial spark to cut through, to create product market fit, takes a tremendous amount of energy. And that's where I think a lot of people sort of, you know, have the idea, but just like, oh, no, I'll get round to it. I'll get round... You've got to... I always say the quote, you know, opportunity knocks but once. Like, when you get that opportunity, like, you've just got to have the intensity to grab it by the hair and not let it go. Like instant reaction go that's that was always my thing as an entrepreneur and and i try and train into those ones if you need that intensity and energy especially to get stuff off the ground what what's your thoughts on follow your passion because obviously like i kind of feel like you you actually have whereas a lot of people are saying don't follow your passion it's the worst thing in the world like grant cardone says it other other top entrepreneurs say it. I kind of think that you have. What's your opinion on the statement and and have you kind of done it? I think it's going to be really hard to have the energy to keep going in the dark times, in the hard times, if you're not 
you don't have that that energy for it. Uh, I I feel I loved streetwear, but to tell you the truth, I think I loved entrepreneurship more because this is where I've seen some of my other competitors or you know people in the apparel space they can they fall too in love with the product they don't adapt to the market and if they ever get to the point where they this death rattle where they're like no no but the consumer's wrong they should be thinking this is cool or something like it's done it's over and that's where I think is I was always I love streetwear and I love sneakers and stuff but I loved actual business more I loved you know diving into the data I loved understanding the marketing and how it worked I loved leading a team I loved personal development learning how to become better myself and see that's what I was passionate about and putting in the outlet that I loved and I still saw a I, I saw a gap in the market too right I'm not saying like I would have done it if I didn't believe there was a gap there that's what yeah. I sort of I, I saw I was like there's no way people are going to keep buying this surfwear shit it's done it's over they just and this is why I love streetwear because I always define it as a great open format DJ you know when you hear an awesome open format DJ and they can mix you know ACDC and then like a trap song and then like house they can just bring it all together and that's what I loved about streetwear is you it wasn't defined in any particular category. It was like an open format DJ. You could just take different parts. It's how you mixed it, how you create, curated it was the magic. And that's why I sort of loved the streetwear part. And I was so passionate about it. But I think I was more passionate about business and entrepreneurship, personal development f- first. Yeah, I, I, I think that's ultimately why you cut through the noise is because you you fell in love with the constant pursuit of making the balance sheet and the profit margin better as much as you love the clothing which is where i think a lot of people get get too far they, they might love they might love boxing more than they like their boxing glove that they've created to sell to the mass market you know so it's kind of like you, you really do there is a fine line and i think the fine line is is it profitable as well you know because because yeah. pro- profit has kept your passion running is is essentially is essentially what you've said. It's, like you, it's that constant. Oh, I'm making money, and I'm doing something that, that I really enjoy. Oh, great! I'll keep going. Oh, I'm making more money. Ah, oh, cool! I'll keep going. It's kind of that that scenario. Whereas, if that is the, like the perfect synergy balance on the scale, isn't it? A hundred percent. And and I love the customer more. Like that was the thing. I would always sell the last pair myself. I would never take if I really wanted something but a customer wanted it, I would always sell it first. It was never about me and what I had. I was always, um, and I'd always try and train this in our team. It's like, we're not here to like stunt on the other. We like the designer. Like look at Virgil when he goes to the show. He's just wearing a black t-shirt and a black thing. He's not trying to be like, oh, look, I got the new fucking ones, the new jacket no one else has. It's because he's focused on the customer. That's what we are. We, we, we're focused on creating the art, creating the experience. We're not actually we, – we should never want to be competing with them and take it away because it's like even all my shoes, so many, I've actually had them at, at Culture Kings. We've sold the last pair and I've had to pay resale from StockX for them because I never kept them for myself and stuff. Yeah, and that shows that you love what you do because you're like, do you know what, I've, 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 I've 
burnt all my ships and I'm just going to keep selling my stuff. And, and, you know, if that means that I have to go without sometimes, it all, but it's all going to come back round. At least you've got the resources now from, from living that way to be able to replace that stuff. One of the one of the most phenomenal things that I've ever witnessed in my life is was that apartment that you bought in the Gold Coast. And what I realized was because I got the opportunity to go up there before you you purchased it and and see and see the whole thing and see and I don't think many people have been up there to be honest with you. But what I realized in that moment and why I kind of real what what I thought to myself, you've probably bought it for this reason, is like the perspective you get from that penthouse. Is like not is like nothing I've ever seen before, and when I went into that apartment and I looked on every single balcony on every single level and I looked at the different views from every every corner of that 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 thing, it blew my mind as to how much we can achieve in this world. And I'm kind of I just wanted to ask you, Simon, is that kind of why you bought it? I I remember when we were looking at it, we had to put a million dollars in a trust account and have a look at it. You got to see it without that. But I remember I was meditating, I was, when we were looking at it, I was looking down on the spot we, Tani and I first had these schoolies slippers in Surface, we created this schoolies merchandise and I remember when we were down there on the street hustling, selling the slippers and now I'm like here at this penthouse and I was just like, this is like the ultimate, I cannot wait to live here and meditate here and look down and think, you know, from the shit house to the penthouse sort of thing and, and but it is it is the most incredible views. We miss it so much, you know. Those sunrises there with the sun just popping on the horizon, the, the um, gym we had on the balcony, the pool up the top. It's like, it's it's another world. We're still we're still hanging on to it. My wife won't won't sell it, even though it's a bit crazy sitting there. But you should you should never sell it. You should, no, no, I start, they'll I start. never build it one like that again. Four levels, like it just would never make any sense for any developer to do it. So it's a definite it, one of a kind. What 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 you paid for it, as far as I'm concerned, as well, was a steal because it yeah. can't be replicated. Yeah. You can't. You couldn't even afford to build one for that price again. Um, Grant Cardone talks about. The cost of replacement, the cost of replacement yeah. on that apartment, you can't replace it for fifteen million. Yeah, so, yeah. so that that's the way I see it. That if I just want to leave with this, obviously the kids have come home, and and it, that just shows how present you want to be. That the kids have come home, and you're like, right, we've got to wrap this up because the kids are home, and I love that. That's what I love about you is is, is your presence. But if there's one piece of golden wisdom that you can give everyone in this audience. Just one thing, that if you had to check out the world tomorrow and you just leave it with them that can move them 1% forward in their life today, what would it be? Just goal setting. Write down what you want to achieve. Make it exciting. Make Do a 10-year one, do a 5-year one. And it's so easy to procrastinate and drive it and make it make it hard. You know, we, we way underestimate what we can do in 10 years, but we overestimate what we can do in one year. Like... It's so important to have those long-term goals and writ written down and then go over them, vision them, think how cool it's going to be when you hit those moments and you do it. Get realigned to it every day, especially in the dark moments. Pull out the bit of paper with your own handwriting and you see it and then just adjust them, change them when you get inspired by something. Like I think the biggest thing that is those goal setting is so crazy i had the one my password was 10 million by 30 when i had that when i was a kid you know and i kept it the whole way and i kept thinking like i was too embarrassed ever as a thing to say that's what it was because it was like how can you think you're going to make 10 million dollars by 30 and we fucking smoked that you know it was like but it 
It's just having a goal and writing it down. And because 95% of people don't write down goals at all, but then even the ones that do, they don't look at them consistently. Like if you do that, you, I reckon you're in the 0.01% straight away and get it to be able to shift your state. And if they don't get you excited, like you can't fucking wait to start working on it, envision it and making it happen, you haven't written exciting enough goals. Just keep dreaming bigger. I love it, Simon. And uh, thank you again for your time on here. And guys, do me a solid favour. Like and subscribe on all the platforms. I'll, I'll chuck links to Simon's stuff under here as well. So you can go and follow him on social media, on Instagram. You can, you can obviously go to his website and stuff, see what he's doing now and everything else. I appreciate all of you listening and much love. Guys, do me a solid favour. Drop a comment below this video and let us know who you want on the podcast next.